something that is very topical and probably changing as, uh, in, in a rather fast uh, speed. Um, we are very uh, happy to welcome today uh, D uh, Dan Hamilton, who is the Executive Director of the Center for Transatlantic Relations at the Johns Hopkins University in, in Washington, D.C., uh, who has written a report on this issue, Creating the North Atlantic Marketplace for Jobs and Growth. We are very happy that he's uh, going to present uh, uh, the main messages of this report today. And then we have uh, two commentators on, on, on the report. Luisa Santos, who is the Director for International Relations, welcome, in Business Europe. And our very own, Andre uh, Sapir, also an expert on these issues. So we are going to start with a, um, a presentation for about 20 minutes, uh, Dan, if that's okay with you. And then we will hear from our panelists for about 10 minutes each. And then, as, as usual, we will open up the floor for, for a conversation. So, Dan, without further ado, the floor is yours. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Maria. Thanks to Bruegel for hosting. Uh, I'm going to plug Maria as uh, author of a chapter. We have in another book we're also presenting later today at the German Marshall Fund that, and on the domestic roots of foreign policy in the European United States. And Maria's chapter is about the economic issues within Europe and what it means for European foreign policy. So I'm her agent here as well. So, uh, <laughs> um, and Andre and I have worked uh, in the past together. I think we were, I think, what, what were we, overseers of that first study that was supposed to do what's the numbers on if we did a US-EU uh, agreement? And Louisa and Business Europe were always good collaborators, so thank you again for coming. Um, so this is a study, uh, it's, it's fully on our website, transatlanticrelations.org, if you'd just like to get electronically. It's not a big book, but it, I was concerned that, uh, to, to put it mildly, thinking had stopped with the election of Donald Trump when it came to our economic relationship. Uh, and so this is an effort to try to think through whether there is life after TTIP, uh, or not, and the kinds of issues we have to think about. So that's really, it tries to sketch out ways to think. I'm not necessarily advocating a particular path, but I think we have to think harder about the pros and cons of different paths and also the pros and cons of staying where we are right now, which I call the road to nowhere. So the, I say creating a North Atlantic marketplace for jobs and growth, three paths that are maybe viable. Uh, one detour, which is Brexit, uh, a U-turn, which is we have to get back on track with Turkey, uh, and the road to nowhere, which is the road we're on right now. And I should say just at the outset, uh, the study was, uh, was done uh, with the support of the uh, Confederation of Norwegian uh, Industry, uh, Economie Suisse, and uh, Tusiad, uh, the Turkish Employers Industry Association. But, and we did a number of meetings, uh, and I appreciate their counsel. I thanked a lot of other people who I uh, shared drafts with. Uh, but again, just to be very clear, these thoughts are just mine. They're no one else's. Uh, I'm just an independent gadfly, so uh, I don't want to implicate anyone in this, but I do appreciate that support. And I have had a number of meetings in Brussels with counterparts, uh, and I appreciate uh, everything that people have done to help with this. So I'd like to just use the PowerPoint just because it gets us through it maybe a little faster and talk a bit about what's happening. So I would argue the last year, uh, in fact, I think I'm just going to stand for this so they don't get people's way. The current agenda, it seems, is we're just, it's just damage limitation every day. Uh, it's really not getting us anywhere. There are a lot of landmines out there 
that you can see. I'm not even going to go through them, but you know what they are. And this seems to be the reality we've been living in across the Atlantic for the last year or so. Uh, and so, at some point, those landmines are going to go off. Uh, we should not have the luxury of thinking that we can kind of just, just keep in this sort of uh, kind of tenuous situation without really some real damage finally being done. Uh, and this is occupying a lot of energy on both sides of the Atlantic. But let me give the setting. I think the, in order to get to the roads uh, going forward, one has to understand, of course, the world we're in is different than the world when TTIP was launched, when that high-level group was started. Uh, and I think it's very important to keep in mind our current and maybe future setting some other determinative factors. So one is there is, the, of course, the digital economy. Uh, you know, we have a chapter in the annual survey we do on the digital economy, but it's becoming the economy. And one has to really understand what that means for all sorts of things, not only across the Atlantic, but in the world. It, it was not uh, such a forceful presence when TTIP started, but it, it's, it's accelerating. And we have, to, we have to keep this in mind. I think another is that the changing nature of trade. Trade is really broken up into lots of tasks, lots of intermediate types of uh, trading relationships that when you put something together, you know, made in Germany is often actually assembled in Germany. Uh, because it's it's made in lots of different places elsewhere, and all the all the value-added parts and components come into a place that creates a product. That's the same in in the United States, same in lots of places. One has to understand the value chains of trade, and not just uh, just a number. And that relates to an important thing. If you take a value chain of Europe, chain map of Europe, it's not the same as the institutional map of Europe. Uh, and that's becoming even more important because of the next change, which is, of course, Europe itself is changing radically in terms of its institutional makeup, particularly because the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union. And we have to think about that. And if you look at the value chain maps of Europe, European companies, American companies, use all of Europe <coughs> to do their products and services. Turkey is actually a very important part of the uh, trade connections. Norway, Switzerland, increasingly Eastern Europe. One, and our, our survey usually of the transatlantic economy shows that U.S. companies have not left Europe, but they're shifting where they do business in Europe. And Poland is becoming a huge place for American manufacturing. There are more jobs now uh, American companies produce in Poland than I think in Spain. Uh, and this has been from almost nothing, you know, this over 15, 20 years ago. So there's lots of shifts going on, and one has to keep that uh, in mind. And then, of course, there's the diffusion of power globally, which means there are rising competitors elsewhere, some of who may not share the same commitment to rules-based uh, order that the U.S. and Europe have, uh, and whether we do uh, in the future is a question probably. But we have to think about that diffusion of power uh, as well. So a lot of different things. But when it comes down, I'm just going to reorient ourselves to the U.S.-European economy. And it's always important just to keep some facts in mind, that despite all of this turbulence, we are still each other's most important economic commercial partners, bar none. Uh, and that the gaps that are in the media about growth, about job creation, about trade, have all been narrowing, not expanding. And we have the latest numbers that show that that's been the case even last year as well. 
and that 15 million people on both sides of the Atlantic owe their jobs uh, to this economy. Um, and that, if you compare this to the world, it's not, you know, we have a smaller part of GDP and exports and trade, but trade is not commerce. And the real driver across the Atlantic is investment. Investment drives trade and not, not trade in goods. And one always has to keep sort of this in mind to understand why we still have this distinctive uh, relationship. So if you put those things together, the sales of American companies and European companies, uh, you know, far outweigh sort of trade and good flows. So often in the media, you'll see a picture of shifts in trade. They usually just mean trade and goods. They don't include services. And they don't, and they ignore investment, which is the driver. So one has to be very cautious sometimes when one sees these very quick uh, charts and how they're moving. And this is just quite uh, symbolic of the depth. So we, the point is we have a real stake in each other's success because of this intertwined nature. And there's no trend going anywhere else in the world. These are U.S. investment flows going to Europe uh, per decade, and they're going up, not down. Uh, the American companies are not... In leaving Europe to go someplace else. They're going within Europe someplace else sometimes, but that's not the same thing. And you see this trend over a long time. This is the investment to Europe versus the, the, all the BRICs, Brazil, Russia, India, China. You just you know, see no, no difference, really. Um, there's a big debate in the media about holding companies and about tax uh, issues with U.S. companies, and you invest only in cheap tax locales and so on. So what we did here is strip out uh, those types of rationales for investment in Europe. And what you get, if you, if you keep them in, you get about 56% of U.S. investment in the world comes to Europe. If you strip them out, you get about 46%. So it's less, but it's not hugely less. And it's still far more than any other place. So even that debate, while a legitimate political debate, does not detract from the basic picture of why we are so important to each other. And that shows also where the dynamism. This is sales of companies in Europe versus when we send stuff to Europe. You want to be on this line. You don't want to be on that line. Uh, and the same for, uh, uh, same for European companies are doing the same in the United States. This is, this is where they are driving their issues. The same is with services. We are the biggest services economies in the world. Most jobs are in the services economy both sides Atlantic, and our service uh, com companies use the transatlantic base to be globally competitive services players. There aren't a lot of other services economies in the world, in fact. We are basically it. Uh, and this is the real dynamic, again, where you see it's driven by investment. This is the digital economy. Again, if you what's called digitally enabled services. These are services that could be transferred digitally. You don't know if they are, because it's hard to know that, but they could be. So this is an extreme outer projection. But even that shows this dominance across the Atlantic of how we interact in the new digital world far more than with any other continent. It's just not even really much of a comparison. <clears throat> and that the destination of EU exports and services, uh, the United States is here. That's more than all of Asia and Oceania, just one country. And the EU is by far the most important partner in the digital world uh, for the United uh, States. Um, and so I'll just skip that. So I think it's just important to set the stage. We have a global stage, new trends. 
but we still have these basic facts about how important we are to each other. So there are different ways to think forward. One is they say is where we are right now, uh, the deep freeze, right? The basic impression is the incentives are really low right now to try something big with the Americans or Americans with the Europeans. And the obstacles seem really high given the political issues we're facing. So why bother? Let's just freeze it. Let's just keep it and not try to do anything else. I think that's the easy out. That's where our governments are right now. I would say that leads us not only to the road of nowhere, we're going to end up in a trade war if we continue down this road. Because there are all those landmines that I showed on the first slide. They're going to blow up. Uh, we have the latest issue on steel, aluminum. Uh, there was a solar. I mean, these cases are going to come up and up again. And if there's nothing else in terms of a relationship, there's, you, there's, you have nothing to lose, basically. And while some of those things the U.S., the Trump administration is doing are directed at China, it'll ricochet to Europe just because, again, of the deep integration we have because of that. We are confronting each other at the WTO. Uh, and the, the future of the WTO as an organization could be at issue because of the lack of the U.S. and the EU understanding the, how we have to work together there. It's not only about us, but we are still the core of making that work. And if we don't have another track, we just put everything in the deep freeze, uh, that is likely to uh, fester, not be frozen. Uh, the same with uh, one should anticipate if we have a negative reaction, why would the administration not want them to try to play the Europeans off against each other? It's so easy to do. Uh, the U.S. tends to refrain from that often, but not in a different context where there doesn't seem to be anything to lose. So I think it's not good for Europe. I think the entire privacy shield, the data regulations we have across the Atlantic are already very tenuous, would simply collapse. The commission would again say, we have nothing to lose. Let's just declare the Americans are not uh, going along with our guidelines. The whole uh, data protection regulations are coming online. Nobody in the United States even knows what they are much being ready for them. It's an easy thing to sort of just pull the, just do that and blow up everything. And that would chill Transatlantic commerce because of the digital points I made earlier where everything's so reliant on that. And if we are so involved with each other on this, then we become the rule uh, takers and not the rule makers in a world of diffuse competition. We start spending time fighting each other than actually turning around and looking at the world that's coming at us. That was one of the original motivations of TTIP. Uh, we lost the narrative on that, but that, I think, is it. And we will start to fight each other, and the value chain map of Europe will be disrupted, which means our other allies, who are not members of the EU, will also suffer, and there will be ricochet for the UK. So I don't see this as a good scenario, but this is where we are. And it's interesting, you know, the U.S. and the EU have said to each other, well, Donald Trump has, you know, taken the U.S. out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He's renegotiating the Korea Agreement, renegotiating NAFTA, doing all these other things. When it comes to the EU, the administration has stopped and said, well, you know, actually we might want to redo something with the EU. They have not said we want to no TTIP or we don't want to do anything with the EU. They have actually been modestly positive. 
And uh, the commission has said basically the same thing. When the time is right, Commissioner Malmstrom has said, we want maybe entertain that. But the time has not been right. So the question is, is there a time that's going to be right? And if you think there's no time right, this is the future. <clears throat> so let me point out then a couple options. Another one, uh, I got a good point over here, <clears throat> I would call cherry picking. <laughs> so this means let's not try to do a big, big deal, but let's not stay in the deep freeze. Let's try something, which is, this is, you know, TTIP got pretty far. There were a lot of basically agreements within the TTIP framework <laughs> that we didn't clear as agreements because we weren't done. It was supposed to be one big package. But you could take some and, and get them to conclusion and do them one by one, case by case, and actually have some wins. You cherry pick the wins. You harvest the wins where you can get them. That won't be a big deal, but it'll be a lot of smaller deals. One idea that could be part of that would be a USEU zero tariff agreement on goods. I said goods was not a big deal, but where our economies are so big and the differences on tariffs and so on are marginal, uh, relatively seen, uh, that you could maybe make that work, perhaps. Uh, it wouldn't be a big impact like the TTIP originally proposed, but it's, again, uh, you know, if Europe grows 2% a year, that creates a market the size of the country of Argentina every year. Not 10% not growth in Argentina, it is Argentina. And American companies would do a lot with that if those barriers would be even lower. So you could do something. You get a lot of momentum on the goods trade because of that. The impact on jobs is not as, because the real jobs impact is in the services economy. Um, you get some progress going. You could mean we're not spending time worrying about how we clean chickens with each other, but we turn to food safety issues uh, coming from Southeast Asia or other places where maybe our inspectors aren't spending as much time. Um, we could maybe start to uh, agree on some things and how we approach third countries with high standards. The problem with this is that we did something like this during the Bush administration. We created a Translate Economic Council, which actually still exists. You could probably revive that as part of this option. And it was the idea, we're not going to do something big, so let's do just let's make progress wherever we can. This is what they did. No one knew what progress they made. It ended up being, in fact, about how you clean a chicken. And it, we, there, it ran into just sort of deadlock after deadlock, and it was so low profile, there was no high profile way to make the deals that would make this mean anything. There were sector-by-sector sector agreements important for a sector like marine safety, but nobody else cared. So this is marginally better than the deep freeze, but it doesn't do a lot to position us for the global competition we're facing. It doesn't take care of any of these other issues, the digital issues, privacy, all of that. And it does says nothing about the wider Europe agenda, which is becoming important for the United States. One has to remember I hate to say that in the heart of Brussels, but the EU is not Europe. The EU is a big part of Europe. It's becoming a, a little less of Europe soon. And American companies operate through the whole continent. And I think the EU also has to understand how it's going to have its relationships now with the rest of non-EU Europe. So I think in the new setting, we have to think harder about this piece. A US-EU agreement alone is really important, but it's not going to be enough anymore. So that's the cherry picking. Well, let's, let's go back to TTIP. You know, this is what the, on, on record officially, 
the Trump administration is still talking about. Um, you could still put in maybe some, some differences that translate zero on goods, like I said, but you want to open the services markets because that's, that's where the real gains are. The EU number one approach on TTIP has been to open the U.S. public procurement market, and we have to deal with rule of origin issues. It's a, it's a whole bunch of regulatory agreements, uh, and the thing they didn't do in the TTIP in the past was make it an open platform for third countries. At the end of the TTIP, they started talking about that, uh, but they didn't say what that would be. And I've always argued strongly that I, that was a mistake, that because it created the impression this was the U.S. and the EU closing up Fortress Europe. I don't think that was the intent, but because the narrative wasn't done well, <coughs> that's where we got. <coughs> Seems very hard to me uh, to, given European politics, uh, to do a TTIP with the Trump administration. You can correct me if I'm wrong. That's my sense of European politics at the moment. So I think it'd be toxic, even if you change the name, which you probably have to do. Um, because I think in Europe, you see huge public anxieties on trade today, as you do in the United States. They take it somewhat different form. But in Europe, they're directing it at the commission in some ways. So if the commission to step forward and say, well, now actually we just want to get back on track with the Americans and, and the Trump administration, I think we'd have some political issues here. I think the investor state dispute settlement provisions of TTIP turned out to be a deal breaker for the Europeans in particular, although there's also opposition in the United States. And I think any effort to do TTIP again has to take account of that in some way. And I don't believe the U.S. will ever agree to a, the EU proposal for a multilateral system. This won't, won't happen under any administration. It's not a, a political issue. Um, and if you did this again with this current administration, all of the EU interests in the forward progressive leaning areas of uh, labor and environment probably wouldn't be happening. And it says nothing again about Brexit. A US EU TTIP deal doesn't say anything. So this seems a little wackelig, as the Germans would say, a little shaky. Uh, <coughs> so let me give you a, a different idea, which is uh, what I call the, the North Atlantic marketplace. And again, this is just another option. I'm not saying necessarily this is what we need to do, but I think we need to think differently given the current situation. That's the main point. This is an effort to simply think differently. The high-level group that came up with the TTIP was called the High-Level Working Group on Jobs and Growth, not trade. TTIP, the narrative became as if trade was the means, was, was the goal, a trade agreement. Well, but really? Isn't the goal jobs and growth? Trade is a, a means to an end. It's not the end. The political end has to be good jobs, better jobs, keep your job, train for a new job, and let's have economic growth so people can share on a, a broadening pie across the Atlantic. That, it seems to me, is the argument for this option. That means you, don't, you get rid of the idea that this is all about a trade agreement, because I said trade isn't even the driver here. You don't limit it to a single undertaking in the trade jargon that's all about one package like TTIP was. You start to think about a series of bilateral, what I call job and growth agreements, a JAGA, pardon, pardon the acronym, but we're here in Brussels, so it's okay, uh, and think about it with all of Europe. So a US-EU JAGA could be a core 
but it wouldn't mean you couldn't do a US-UK uh, JAGA, uh, in fact, a EU-UK JAGA. And I'll come to what that, what that means. But it means breaking apart some of the things that were in the earlier packages and making it a different narrative to our publics. So the first is about jobs and growth. Much of the debate and the anxieties on both sides of the Atlantic today are about are, are the job I have going to stay, is it still going to be there, come, given all the change in the economy? How do we work on that? Workforce development, vocational training, skills development, dealing with the churn of the economy, having enough flex, flexibility in the economy, but also enough security that if you lose one job or have to train, there are systems in place to do that. That's a really big, big topic these days. And actually, the Trump administration is interested in that topic, even though it's not interested in a lot of other of these issues. And there's some, there's some openness here, and there are lots of European models that are very interesting to the United States. And in fact, it's not, in fact, where the federal government of the United States has the main authority. It's the governors, and it's U.S. states. There are lots of innovative models happening in, the United, in U.S. states today that are coming from Europe. Uh, so you'll get some buy-in on this if you go that way. Small and medium-sized enterprises are what drive this, and yet the TTIP and all of that didn't have a lot of provision for them. So one has to really single them out and give them some opportunity. The innovation economy is what's going to drive our economy. We need to have better connections there, uh, not less. Uh, so that would be a whole package. Would not, not, it's not about trade, those, those things. That's about just sort of let's work together better on some of these issues. I think you do have to have a trade piece, but it would be you know, more narrowly defined to deal with these kinds of barriers. I think one has to take on the investment versus trade uh, dispute. Uh, and uh, under this, you would probably exclude ISDS as it has come to be negotiated in the TTIP, probably in favor of something like the U.S.-Australia Free Trade Agreement, where both sides didn't have it because they affirmed simply that domestic law, the institutions of the rule of law, in their respective societies were strong enough to deal with investor rights as well as any other rights and leave it at that uh, and not, not get into this fight about who an extrajudicial system that had come up around the corners of democratic rules-based societies. That's contentious, but this is you know, a different option. It started taking away some of the heat from the other ones. And then finally, this is where TTIP lost the, lost the narrative, in my view. Somehow along the way, I don't think it was the intent, but somewhere along the way, the narrative started to be that trade negotiators in Brussels and Washington were going to strike deals over the heads of regulators to get some market access improvement because it was all one big package and started talking about regulation. Uh, that wasn't the case. The regulators were really in charge of those types of regulatory, regulator to regulator dialogues. But that was the narrative. And that became toxic because people said, how can that be? Right? These are regulations that come up from society, all sorts of ways we do that. You know, how food is clean, how, you know, how safety and all that stuff. We can't just give that away because we want public procurement. And so I think we should return to what it really was about before and should be about, and that's the narrative. We want to work across the Atlantic with our regulators to get them to be better regulators. That's to help them do their job better, not to give up their job. They are 
their job is to stop trade, frankly, if it doesn't meet certain standards. But given the world, the setting I mentioned, the world we're in, it's very hard to know, given limited bureaucratic resources, whether you're able to, in fact, inspect everything or have procedures in place. And because we are so deeply integrated, slight differences in our systems create uh, huge bureaucratic uh, resources as a drain on huge resources. We investigate each other more on these standards than we do Southeast Asian imports of food and things like that, just because we have more of the trade. So it's, it's sort of a perversion of the intent of that. And so regulatory cooperation here would be about that. Let's free up some things. If we can say a front bumper assembly on both sides of the Atlantic is similar, and we have similar ways to do that, why not? If we can exchange safety data across the Atlantic, which we don't in many cases, why wouldn't we not want to do that? That's just better data. Uh, there's just like lots of things like that that would be more in this piece. And then finally, we would have to turn around and say, we really do insist on these standards being high. And we do believe there are a number of countries around the world that are maybe not adhering to those or are challenging them. Uh, and that we would take a stand together. I'm not saying it would be anti-Chinese, but I do think China would be a logical first place to look, where the US and the EU can align their policies to make sure that we remain the rule uh, makers and not rule takers, and that, and that those rules actually mean something. So, these would be bilateral agreements uh, by, among sovereign entities, important in the U.S. context at the moment. But I don't think that's necessarily a negative for European colleagues, because uh, it would include the EU as, as one of those sovereign uh, entities. So it's a different way of thinking. It's just a different road. So just to finish, that's, these are the impacts, I think, of that, of that option. I just mentioned them. Uh, and it has some possibilities. Um, I'm going to leave the other pieces, which I mentioned on the detour and the, the U-turn. But let me just say briefly about it. Uh, the, the last two pieces of the study are to say, back to this point about wider Europe. We have to have a way to align the triangle of the US, EU, and the UK as we go forward. We simply have to figure that out. You know, U.S. companies today export more from the U.K. to the rest of Europe than U.S. companies in China export to the rest of the world. Uh, we are deeply, deeply in, in, you know, invested in the U.K., but we are also in the EU. And U.S. companies have a huge interest in knowing how this is going to sort itself out. There is talk of a U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement. I don't believe that will happen anytime soon. They, they can't do it until the U.K. leaves. They are actually having shadow negotiations, I would argue, right as we speak. But you can't do it formally till later. And what you're seeing is the UK getting some cold feet on the notion of actually going quickly into a free trade agreement with the United States. My example is sort of British farmers. Can you imagine British farmers having just lost all their subsidies from the common agricultural policy, suddenly exposed to American agribusiness? I mean, I think the British are starting to think this through, too. So I think it'll be difficult. And so a jobs and growth agreement, not a free trade agreement, with all those pieces I mentioned, could be a stepping stone to something later. It's just not about a trade, necessarily. It's about how our commercial relations work. 
And the same with Turkey. Turkey is a NATO ally where we have difficult issues. It has a custom, partial customs agreement with the EU. There's a discussion about what to do about that. If you could, and, and I, I go back to a time when, the, when the part, this partial customs union was first created, it was a time of great tension between the EU and Turkey. And the way, if you know the history on that quickly, the way both sides got out of that really turbulent time was to move forward, not backward, and to build an economic component into a relationship that then had some real teeth to it. And that was the success of the partial customs union, but it's partial. And that's the debate today, whether the EU and Turkey should modernize and expand it. But the US piece of this is important because, and now I'm doing more of the foreign policy but part of this, you know, we are in a tense relationship with Turkey right now as allies. It might have been eased a little bit a few days ago. But one reason why that's such a tense relationship is that it's a skewed relationship. We are military allies, and the security and the military dimension of the U.S.-Turkey bilateral relationship is just overwhelming. We don't have anything really in place for our economic relationship to sort of balance it out a little bit, to have other ways of having conversations. And so a U.S.-Turkey jobs and growth agreement would not be against anybody else. It would not be a free trade agreement because I don't think either side is ready for that. Again, it would be a stepping stone to sort of add some balance to a very skewed relationship and maybe help uh, with this value chain map of Europe. So that's the quick summary on those two chapters. So I'll stop here, but I thank you uh, for listening. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stan, for this uh, very interesting talk. Uh, I'm going to give... I'm going to give the word to our, to our panelists here, but just if I may add one, perhaps one uh, comment that we can perhaps pick up later on in the discussion. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly think the, the idea of having no trade agreements but having agreements on growth and jobs is really a, a, very, a very good way of understanding what the end point is. But one of the anxieties that uh, uh, trade agreements bring, in the, certainly in the, in the public uh, uh, sphere, is this idea of distribution. So there are, there are those who benefit from these trade agreements and those who lose from these trade agreements. So I was wondering if there is a, this a dimension you could add to your uh, suggestion of jobs and growth and equitable distributions uh, as a way of reducing some of the opposition that we've seen, certainly in this part of the world, on, on trade agreements in general. But since the, the U.S. is such a big, a big partner in this respect, most of the anxiety is typically directed to the... Uh, uh, to the U.S. But uh, I, will, I will let our, our panelists actually uh, make their own uh, suggestions. Uh, Lisa, may I, may I give the, word, the, the, word, the floor to you first, and then Andrew will, will move after that. Thank you very much. Well, and thank you, um, Dan, for, uh, for your presentation. I think it was, it was very, very interesting, and it, it gives us a lot of food for thought. Um, I will try to bring here um, a punchy perspective. Because, of course, you mentioned the, the freeze, the current freeze. I would not say we are in a freeze. We are actually in a dynamic, but it's more of a negative dynamic than a positive one. Um, because if it were freeze, things would stay normally, we wouldn't talk. Right now, the US is in our agenda, at least here in Europe, not for positive reasons, but for negative reasons. And we are trying to look for positive reasons to continue to engage in the U.S., but frankly, there are not many. So um, one thing you, you de you de we definitely need to, to make sure is that this negative environment 
does not contaminate what exists already. And I think we've been, as business community, both in EU and US, trying to make sure that we keep business out of the picture. But we can't, as you said. I mean, it's not just direct, uh, it's not just exports or imports, it's investment. And that's why, precisely because the investment is key, is that's why all this agenda of the current administration of balancing trade deficits is wrong. It's pointless, because if you're talking about investment, if that is investment that is driving a relation, it's normally that you need to import to be able to export as well. So this idea that I'm going to block imports from Europe or from around the world, but especially from Europe, because I see a surge in our imports, and this is bad for American business, and this is bad for the country, this negative is skewed. And we need to change it. And it's not easy to change it right now, because it's very much the, the, the present negative uh, narrative in, in, in the US. And I just came back from the US last week. So the other point uh, I would like to, to, to raise is that Europe is not in the map. China's in the map. NAFTA is in the map, Europe is not. Is this bad or not bad or positive? Well, we can say it's, it's, it's positive in the sense that we are not the immediate target, at least not openly. But what <laughs> happens, of course, is we are not seen as strategic partner. The idea of a strategic partnership is gone. At least I don't see it in the discussions we had with senior officials in the US, this is not there. Um, so how can we change the situation and say, look, we are strategic partners. It's not just trade and investment is even more important than that. And if we want both to uh, find a common ground to deal with a country like China, uh, we need to change this narrative and we need that the US administration sees Europe as, as a highlight. And this is important also for, for your uh, jobs and growth agenda and partnership, because if this doesn't change, then we are treated like China. Why should we be treated differently? Why does the US want to do something different with us than it wants to do with China? Um, we definitely have an interest in, as you pointed out, building new rules that could be global rules. but. We are trying to do that as Europeans with the US in the context of WTO. And once again, when we ask uh, uh, US officials, OK, WTO is not working. We all agree. I mean, I think nobody says it's working. It's definitely not delivering on, on market access for the moment, or very, very little. And then it's definitely not delivering on rules either. That's one of the areas where both as European and Americans have an interest in that the WTO starts delivering also on rules, if not on market access. So, but right now, the, the, the view in the US, and I'm talking about administration, I'm not talking about business, is the system is flawed. The system is not in favor of US interest. This is not a good system. But when you try to engage and say, OK, how can we improve the system? Because that's the idea. I mean, we are also ready to improve the system as Europeans. And we have an interest to work with Americans and with Japanese and with Canadians, Australians, whatever. 
um, there is no answer. There is no view on reform. So the, the impression we have right now is that there is no positive agenda in the US, only a negative agenda. The only positive agenda that the US administration was able to put on the table was a tax reform. That was a positive agenda for the business community overall. We still have to see, as Europeans, some provisions on, on that, on that uh, legislation that might be discriminatory or not. But overall, if we consider overall, it's a positive agenda. But all the rest is very negative. We need to control imports. We need to make sure uh, we, we have more options to balance our, our trade agreements. Um, and we keep having a lot of risks on the table. Will the, the US pull out of NAFTA? Uh, will the US pull out of Coros? What will happen? So every, we have every bit to be negative. Now, how can we change this narrative also from the European side? And when I'm talking about the European, I'm talking not just you. I'm talking everyone, everyone because this includes Turkey, includes no, includes Switzerland, all the Europeans. I think what is important is that we put Europe back on the map. And this is not an easy exercise, but it's one exercise that uh, we are trying to do, both as European <coughs> Union, but also the national, the national representations of the different EU member states are trying to showcase that Europe is important for the US, and the su success of the US is important for Europe as well. I mean, we have an interest in that the, the economy in the West works well because our companies have invested in the US massively. But this means that if the, we want the investments to continue and contribute to create jobs in the US, we need, of course, to keep, to keep our, our economies at least in the status quo situation. You cannot have, all of a sudden, additional duties on steel, additional duties on, on aluminum. That, by the way, will have also a negative impact down the supply chain and will have a negative impact on investments in the car manufacturing, for instance, but also in other, in other, in other industries. So to change the narrative, bring Europe back at the center, show, go to the US. I can tell you it's a very challenging exercise at the moment, but a very interesting one indeed. Show the importance of the transatlantic economy that because you're trying to build jobs and create jobs in the US, you need to keep a very sound and a very deep relation with the EU. I think your proposal, Dan, it's a good one, but we are not there yet. I think right now we are basically trying to avoid problems, and we don't know if we will manage to avoid them. Hmm? <laughs> trying to show that Europe is important for the US, and then starting to build a positive agenda, maybe by addressing challenges that we have jointly. But also here, I mean, we still have to do a work. We still have to convince that, okay, we need to address the issue of China, but it's not by being completely aggressive. We need to have a good balance. We need to use rules. We need to have existing framework to engage China. And second, that if we, the multilateral system is not working, if international organizations are not working, then it's up to us to reform it. The EU and the US have created the system. If the system is flawed at the moment, if it needs to be corrected, it's both 
again to the EU and the US to come back and propose a change. We're not just say it's bad, it's bad with nothing as an alternative. Mm -hmm. So before we go to, we reached your proposal, I think we need to do all these steps because right now we are very, very apart uh, in, in, in even thinking about a trade uh, agreement or an agreement of some, of some sort. Of course, this does not exclude that you know, regulators continue to speak. The question, of course, is how much can we achieve from this uh, regulatory dialogue when you don't really have a push there to, to deliver some results? So again, on a case-by-case -case basis, this could, be, this could be done. But I think right now, the main importance for us as priority is to ensure that Europe is seen as a strategic partner by the US. I think that's our priority for the moment. Thank you. Thank you very much, Luisa. Thank you for, for this for this comment. So just a, a just a quick question on, 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 on some of the arguments you're making. But on the one hand, you have the numbers, and the numbers that Dan showed are quite clearly the transatlantic mm. economy is very big and it's the biggest mm -hmm. uh, by comparison to anything else. So what is at the heart of the lack of interest in the U.S. in considering the U.S. strategic ally? I think that, uh, well, uh, this comes back from the idea of all this policy, America first. Uh, the fact that the U.S. is perceived as being subject of mistreatment by the international order and by all partners. The, pro the, main, the main problem is, is China, but of course the U.S. is going to see all the deficits <coughs> it has. And it has deficits with a number of countries, including the ones that are next to the border, including Canada, including Mexico. I mean... The, the U.S. does not see Canada either as a strategic partner. If you see what is happening with Canada and all the measures that are also being put on Canada, it means that everyone is treated in, in the same way. With China, I would say, being in a different category. But all the rest is more or less the same. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not saying that deliberately there is a negative um, narrative towards Europe, but Europe is not in the map and is not considered as a natural ally of the U.S. to tackle some of the challenges that the U.S. faces, but we're also facing. So I think that's, that's the main issue right now. Okay, so the, the, the ability, inability to differentiate the current account from the capital account uh, seems to be a, a driver in the, uh, in the perceptions, at least. But okay, uh, Andre, can I, can I ask you to give you your thoughts on these issues, and then we'll turn back to, to Dan. Okay, my thoughts are very simple. Uh, I'm pretty much in agreement with Louisa. Um, dark picture. Um, no, I think Dan already painted a fairly dark picture, but then gave us some light uh, at the end. And, I mean, that's good. I mean, that's, that's our job, right, to, 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 uh, to, to propose uh, some light in a, in a, in a difficult uh, environment. And I think... Uh, you know, we should be grateful to you for for making the uh, the, the, the proposals uh, that you uh, that you put forward. A modest one, I mean, as you said yourself, it's a modest proposal. But I think we just heard from Louisa that okay, even that modest proposal, uh, the environment is not there uh, for that to uh, to that to fly. And so you know, she she closed the light in in a sense. Unfortunately, not with glee, but. 
you know, uh, with uh, with open uh, with open eyes. And so it's hard to it's hard to disagree with her. Uh, it's hard to disagree both with sort of this picture that um, I mean we are in a, in a situation where um, the notion of rules and the notion of a rules based system, uh, multilateral or even mm. regional, uh, to speak of NAFTA indeed, uh, seems hard to uh, to maintain. And yet we are indeed at a time, and China was mentioned by, uh, by both of you, uh, we are indeed in a need, uh, given the uh, changing uh, politi political and economic powers in the world, uh, in a sense we are more than ever in need of a rules-based system. It's more difficult, obviously, to have a rules-based system where <coughs> the main actors can agree on those rules, and yet not to have the rules uh, can quickly degenerate into a really, really big fight. So this is really where the world is, in, in this sort of crossroads where it's more difficult than ever and more necessary than ever. And that requires incredible amount of wisdom uh, on the part of the, uh, of the main actors. Uh, of which the United States and the European Union are two of those main actors. I would not single them out as the only uh, main actors, but they are certainly, historically, uh, at least since World War II, uh, they've been the pillars uh, of the system, and uh, they have a, a joint uh, interest to, uh, to continue to, to have uh, a system, you know, although a, a revised, probably, uh, system. And so, you know, that kind of narrative... Um, seems to be uh, extremely, uh, extremely difficult to uh, to uh, to put uh, to put forward or to, to to agree upon. Now, what what can one do uh, in this extremely, I think, difficult environment? Um, I personally see two solutions. Um, one solution. Um, is to uh, wait for time and uh, hope that things will change at some stage. Um, but I agree um, that, I mean, that uh, avenue, uh, which is a tempting avenue on the, on the one hand, and talk to various sort of parties, including obviously business, uh, because the numbers that you've put forward uh, show that shows that there is tremendous uh, interest on the part of, of business here, or the cost of some of those measures that are being discussed, of which the EU uh, would be either directly or indirectly targeted. Because I think you're very right that you know even if it's even if it's Mexico, well you know the EU has a free trade agreement with Mexico, which is upgrading. It's necessarily going to have. Some, the EU is going to be cut in this. You know, whatever, China, wherever, we are in a global world with global value chains, and so it doesn't have to be uh, European firms in Europe that need to be targeted. It can be, you know, European firms that are targeted through some other countries. So I think you're very right that uh, there's a lot of risk. And, okay, one way to, to deal with that, okay, let's sort of business... Uh, play an important role uh, at the moment, uh, more than, than before, in a sense, and keep low on the political level because there's no, there's no avenue. Uh, okay, I think that is, uh, that is a not unreasonable 
but it may prove not to be sufficient. Um, and therefore, I think your idea to, in a sense, create or recreate a framework, a modest framework, but it's, it's basically a framework to, uh, to discuss issues. Okay? You call it a regulatory cooperation, uh, but I take it that um, it's more than the cooperation that is needed in delivering, it's the cooperation that is needed to sit down and show that indeed we have lots of common interests and we have lots of common values uh, that we do share, and that sort of that community uh, need to be drummed up to uh, to show that. And I think this is this is a reasonable uh, this is a reasonable uh, approach. Let me, however, uh, give one example that uh, on one area of regulatory cooperation uh, that does uh, that does worry me. And this is uh, an area where there's been in the past there had been. Uh, quite a bit of cooperation, quite a bit of convergence, even formal agreement between the EU and, and the US. Uh, but now I think giving rise to uh, less and less uh, traction. And this is competition policy. Uh, I think it would be fair to say, uh, at least from, from the EU side, that or Antitrust. I mean, you know, in the EU we have competition policy for state aid and, and antitrust. I'm, I'm talking of the antitrust here uh, part, sort of, which is you know what the US has as well. Um, I think it would be fair to say uh, that the EU competition policy, which is long-standing, right, since uh, since the Treaty of Rome, but which has evolved and become uh, much more uh, important, has evolved towards the US uh, framework, okay? The US framework is an old framework, and uh, there's been, you know, a convergence little by little, and there was indeed, uh, there is indeed still uh, a, a memorandum of understanding between uh, DG competition and uh, the uh, US Department of, of Justice uh, antitrust uh, division. Um, and yet we do see that uh, more and more, and that was already, by the way, true before this administration. So I think it's, it's a trend uh, that did not start in uh, January of, of, of last year, that was there already before, but probably uh, you know, accelerating, uh, that in some of the major areas, and some of the major areas uh, we know include some of the digital, uh, digital uh, economy, but not only there, but Certainly, that's a very crucial area. Uh, we see that on the EU side, we have uh, uh, DG competition, which is extremely, extremely active. And we see a US side, which has become fairly inactive. And that is bound to create a lot of difficulties, all the more so uh, if, you, if you recognize that many of those firms are, are, US, uh, are US firms or US base firms that operate, obviously, globally, that operate also in the, in the EU. There is also the, the dimension of, uh, of the, the tax uh, matters. It's there in Europe also being used through partly the competition, because this is one of our strong instruments. So you know we are using it sometime for want of, of something else. But it's clear that the competition side here is extremely active. 
and very inactive in, in, the, uh, in the US. And in a sense, there is an area uh, for natural cooperation uh, that in principle we have fairly similar frameworks for the, for the reason that I, uh, that I indicated before, and yet uh, we see that there we are not converging, we are diverging. Um, so I would, uh, I would say that in your regulatory convergence uh, uh, agenda, uh, I would very much include this, uh, this matter uh, and look at areas where we are diverging and where this divergence is also uh, part of the, uh, the landmines uh, that you discussed at the, at the start. So it's not a very, very uh, uh, bright... Uh, conclusion, um, but I said I think I, I, I basically agreed with Luisa. I agree with with you also. I mean, you you did not paint something uh, very enthusiastic, but you know I I agree with you that we do need to uh, to keep the uh, the bicycle rolling. Mm. Thank you, Andrea. Uh, Dan, any quick reactions, and then we can take some questions. I mean, if yeah. I, I don't want to be unfair, but to sum it up, it's you know wait and hope strategy. Yeah. Uh, and my basic point was that's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, waiting and hope is not a strategy. Mm -hmm. So uh, I painted, I hope, uh, a realistic picture, and I try to say we, we are skirting through, uh, so far, a whole bunch of landmines, but they're going to start to blow up on us and because we don't have anything else there. You know, there's old Americans saying you can't beat something with nothing, mm -hmm. and we got nothing. Uh, that's my main point. Standing still means losing ground. Uh, we are in a freeze at, at, at the official level. They're just not doing anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the meantime, everything keeps getting worse. And that was my point, I, you know, quit speaking quickly, but uh, we're not keeping things frozen. We're letting them fester. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes they start to pop. And I really do think uh, the uh, thing that's really going to get us is this digital stuff, because there we have diverged. The EU is about to impose a whole new set of extraterritorial mm -hmm. regulations, uh, back to multilateralism, mm -hmm. uh, applying EU law around the world to, to anybody. Uh, and no one in the United States knows much about this at all, and it's heading right our way. And then the, the the Privacy Shield, I think, skirted a disaster in the fall, but this has to keep getting reviewed, and uh, it's just too easy for that to fall because it's too fragile. Um, so I think that will chill the entire economy. Uh, so we don't have to look at the trade side to see where the biggest blow-ups could happen. They could happen in this other area, but they would have a big impact on economics. So my plea is only let's just think a little harder here. Let's not, uh, it's so easy to say the problems are so big, uh, you know, let's just wait. I just, that's just not, you know, that's not a viable strategy, frankly. Uh, and uh, what I'm hearing is the Europeans, I don't mean you, Louisa, but I mean uh, all my European friends that are coming to Washington with their hair on fire saying, oh my God, you know, what's happening here? And they don't have a proposal for us. Well, bring them a proposal. I mean, why, you know, let's get, let's get serious here. Europe wants to be taken seriously. What's your proposal? I don't hear that either. I hear the deep freeze. Let's just keep it frozen. 
So, uh, you know, if you're agreeing on some points where the reforms are needed, let's hear what, what some suggestions are. And my basic point with these other paths, each of them, and Andre sort of said it, is a process. All it does is get us to talk to each other in some framework so that we can have these conversations. And, and that's what's missing now. We're not having a conversation. Uh, it's sporadic. You know, flying Europeans to Washington in, in a plane loads, uh, seeing whoever they can on the street to try to convince them. But there's no you know, framework. And part of it, I agree, is the administration doesn't even have its team in place yet, even on this side. So I get that. But the Congress is certainly there, and there's lots of things one can do. Uh, constituents are there in the states. Mm -hmm. and, you know, investment happens in real places, mm -hmm. not just in, uh, in Washington. Uh, and if you look at what's happening in NAFTA, uh, you know, governor after governor is going to see the White House uh, making a case for NAFTA, what it means for Iowa or Wisconsin or Texas, and you know, pounding every day. You don't see anybody doing that for Europe because, frankly, the Europeans aren't engaging the governors on these kinds of issues. Um, so, I, you know, I do think Europe has some, some responsibility here to get stuff off the dime and propose some channels by which uh, one could engage because it's in your own self-interest, frankly. Whether you pick whatever path you want to pick, I simply say here are three of them three different ways you could think about it. The most modest one, as it says, just cherry-picking. It's just picking a few agreements. We have some problems in competition law, but under the Trump presidency, under, under President Trump, the U.S. and the EU have signed at least two regulatory agreements that have gone further in, in, in insurance and sort of good manufacturing pra practices. And, and so, so things are possible, and that's the point of that option. They're all below the radar screen. Nobody knows they're happening because you're letting people just do their job. Um, and don't get at the high political trauma. So I, I just don't think wait and hope is enough because uh, we're going to end up in a, in a trade war, basically. And that will subvert both of our agendas. Can I, can I just... Of course. Uh, well, the, the, the agreement on good manufacturing practice was actually... Uh, a result of TTIP, so it was yeah. basically... Well, that's my that's one of the paths. So, Let's just I mean, declare victory on a few things TTIP yeah, achieved. No, no, but that... that <coughs> and on your question about about uh, the, the Europeans, what they need to engage more at state level, and they are. I mean, we know that a lot of the nationals are going also to the regions where you have huge investment and trying to, and trying to, to convince people of the importance of the investment. Of course, that right now, the priority is NAFTA. Because that's the thing, yeah. too. I mean, until now it was the tax reform, now it's NAFTA. So everyone is concentrating everything on NAFTA. There's also the question of how much can you put of Europe in the agenda right now where everyone is only concerned about NAFTA. So that's why it's uh, also more difficult. I'm not saying I don't agree with you. We need to come and we need to come with a proposal. And I think we are going there with some, with some proposals. Let's work on, on WTO reform. Let's work on China. And they, maybe, yes, we can do something together, but I don't see at the moment Europe at least coming up already with a proposal when we don't even agree to work on international issues. I mean, we have an issue with sanctions as well. I didn't mention that, but it's definitely one of those issues that can bring also a major, a major disruption. If we, don't, if we don't work together on implementation and if the U.S. decides simply to drop out of the, of the Iran deal. So we need first, I think, as Europeans as well, 
to convince the U.S. administration, and this we do together also with European, with the business community in the U.S., that it's not good just to step out of international organizations and international rules without building something with your partners that could replace it. Because right now what it looks like is that, okay, I don't agree with the system, but I'm going to work outside the system. That's the view. I'm going to work outside the system. And this is not an option. And we need to, to create a new system. We need to convince also that working outside is not better, I think. Lovely. Thank you very much. But uh, we have uh, 15 minutes. So let's uh, stop on the floor for some questions, and then we'll turn it back to the panelists. Question here at the front? We can collect questions from there. Uh, just the microphone, if you don't mind, because we are live streaming. From Economy Swiss, um, I have one thing which I was really, uh, which was thing I thought you thought you, you said quite quickly and quite well it was about jobs and growth, and it is one of the soaring issues when it comes to trade, but also digitalization. Everybody is afraid of losing jobs, but the point is nobody is looking at the facts, and we have looked at the facts in 2015 on jobs changing in structure in Switzerland, and guess what? 10% of all our jobs yearly are getting lost. And 10%, more than 10% are being created again. Today, we're not even through the digitalization. And we, we, know, we are a very open uh, economy. Nobody's talking about this. We're talking about 400,000 jobs being lost and created at the same time in one year. Uh, and that's something we should really put on the table as well from our federations, from the organizations and the institutions to tell the people and the politicians apparently because the Americans haven't got it, uh, what is really happening. It's jobs are not the issue. They are being created if the circumstances are right. And the circumstances are uh, a new trade uh, policy and, uh, and openness. How, how do you address this? I think this is one of the main points uh, on the future to discuss it properly. Thank you. There was a question there. There, there, just there. Thank you very much for <clears throat> for your introduction. My background is with the European trade union movement. Um, first of all, um, you say that the road to nowhere was leading to a trade war. You try to uh, explain to us uh, a little bit what you meant. But I'm afraid that this is not perceived uh, at all, and and that most people believe that this road is better than than another TTIP, whether or not it's called TTIP. So I think that point is certainly not perceived by by people. Secondly, and to take up the, the the same point, you say we shouldn't speak about trade but about jobs and growth. Now, I don't think it's going to fly because people know that even if you change the words, in fact, it's about trade. And people do not believe that this is going to bring jobs. Their experience is not positive in that respect. Uh, I, I know that figures, are, that I can be challenged on figures, but that question is essential, that people see it as a threat to their jobs. 
And that's the, in my opinion, the, the, the main uh, obstacle to, uh, to any uh, further initiative. But I was glad also to see that in your proposal there is no ISDS. <laughs> Thank you. There's a question here at the front. Yeah. The lady here at the front, the black. Turkish Industry and Business Association. Uh, first of all, then, thank you very much for your uh, visionary progressive study. Uh, we are very happy to be associated with your work, uh, together with our colleagues from Economy Suisse and NHO. Uh, I would like to ask you to elaborate a bit more on the research and innovation dimension of uh, US-EU collaboration and broader Europe. Uh, we're talking about digital trade or digitalization of the economy, but also there's a huge competition on supercomputers, quantum technology, quantum computing, <coughs> and artificial intelligence, primarily between US and China. How the future of uh, any type of economic collaboration between EU and US can play a role in, in uh, this competition. It is also not just a matter of uh, growth, and trade, in fact, but also about and these technologies can provide us with solutions when it comes to climate change or health crisis, etc. So, therefore, I would like to get your Okay, excuse me, we, have, we are coming close to the end. I'll take one more question, then I'll, I'll give the floor back to Dan here, the gentleman here at the front. Thank you, Thomas Schneider, Chairman, Association of Managers. Mrs. Santos, you uh, pictured a very bleak um, picture of uh, the uh, Europe vis-à-vis -vis the uh, um, American activities towards isolation and imposing uh, favorite uh, tax regime, which lures away a lot of business from Europe. Uh, Germany, as the largest economy in Europe and uh, one of the larger exporters, by the way, is currently <coughs> facing an impasse because the, the formation of the new government takes ages and ages, uh, which has an impact on European matters. Do you expect once... Uh, in the course of this year, the German government will be uh, reformed and, and to get a new one. Does it, uh, could it give a new impetus to the uh, considerations how to reform and to revive the negotiations with the uh, United States? Thank you. Uh, why don't we come back to Dan, your, your take? Well, on I think this. the two here are kind of related, uh, if I could, on the Francois' point about uh, jobs, and I, I think your point about jobs, too, in a different way. You know, I think what uh, what economists would talk about is the churn of the economy. You know, the economy is churning all the time. Creates jobs, you lose jobs. Create jobs, you lose jobs. Media like to pick up, and politics obviously, on the jobs that are being lost. You don't see as many articles about those being uh, created. Um, <coughs> but politically, of course, just because a thousand jobs are created more here or there doesn't mean that was your job. <laughs> because you might have lost your job, and the other job might not be the one that you're going to get. And I think that's the political dynamic. So one has to be attuned to that, I think. But um, I, th I think you're on to this. The facts do have to get out on both sides. I mean, you know, th there was a study I just saw about the impact of China on jobs in the United States, and it was focused on how many jobs are, have been lost to China in certain state U.S. states. But it shows... This study also showed the jobs that we created because of trade with China, and they were even better. I mean, they were b bigger uh, by you know this state or that state. 
And so that's, that's the turn of the economy. It shows this kind of how this, you know, and I think one has to keep in mind that technological change and innovation also destroys some jobs and also creates different kinds of jobs. That's the turn of the economy. So, and maybe more being uh, in, in the turn, getting churned up by innovation than by China. Uh, and one has to sort of compare that. I, I think, frankly, more jobs are lost in a state like Illinois to a state like Texas or California than they are to China. You know, there's, there's you know, jobs are being lost. I, I show the example, clear example, in Europe, manufacturing jobs are being won in Poland and they're being lost in France and the UK. Uh, so yes, Europe, same number of jobs, but that doesn't tell you uh, if you're a French politician and have to go to a manufacturing plant in your constituency. So, uh, I mean, that's, that's the politics of it. But I do agree we have to paint a better picture of this churn and how it's changing. That's what we try to do with our data all the time, is to show how that's working. And, and so related to your point, that I, I was trying to make the point, which you did eloquently, which, this, I'm, you know, some of the paths were the trade route, and then they run into the problems that you said. The last path was one that's not really a trade route. It's not trying to disguise trade agreement as something else. It was something different. It's really a different starting point, which is to engage on the jobs and growth agreement, to engage on workforce development, having systems in place that allow people to be trained. Uh, that's a big challenge in the United States. Uh, it's a challenge in, in many parts of Europe, but, not, but there are actually really interesting lessons from parts of Europe that we could take. And we do, in fact. Uh, and, and I think you reveal what I've been saying about the United States. There's also deep, deep skepticism in Europe about the benefits of open markets and trade. Uh, it, is, it is strong here. We've seen that in elections. I think business and the commission and others have to take account of that, just as our politics have to do that. And that last path of a jobs and growth agreement are start trying to get to some of that. It's trying to speak to people's anxieties. So the trade piece is only a part of it. It's not, as I said, it's about investment. Who's going to come to your local community, back to the job, <coughs> and invest there? And what is being done? What kind of you know, people do you have who are trained? I hate to do this, but let me just do one anecdote. I've done it before, but it, it is really important to get it, make this real. Charlotte, North Carolina, biggest center of German investment in the United States. <coughs> And it's not the big name companies. It's, of course, anybody knows the German economy? No, it's the Mittelstand. It is the no-name companies. They all invest in Charlotte. Well, why do they do that? Well, because Charlotte has changed its economy to attract investment is part of what it does. But the most interesting thing about it is that when all these companies came, they were hiring the local people, graduates from Central Piedmont Community College. Uh, and after a time, they said to the president of that college, you know, you're, you're not training your graduates to meet our German standards, right? And he said, well, what do we do? And so the Carolinas Partnership, the business association uh, for the region, mm -hmm. had partnered yeah. with the uh, trade and Handelskammer, uh, uh, trade, uh, whatever it is, association in, in uh, Karlsruhe, Germany, and instead of competing with each other, they said, we'll send you business. Somebody wants to invest in one or the other, we'll tell them how great your region is. And they created with the college, the community college, the German companies in these two chambers, 
a certification system so that a graduate from Central <coughs> Piedmont Community College is being certified by Karlsruhe that they have met the standards of a German industry in a certain sector, engineering or something. So the German company knows what they get. You transform the American education system to meet the requirements of the local economy, and there's a job that the person gets. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about, that this is kind of how our economy works these days, because it's driven by the investment that the companies make. It's really not about a trade agreement at all. It's about that type of thing. And I think there's lots of interest in parts of the United States to do that type of thing. So on the innovation, this is the other end of it, we are still the, so deeply tied to the innovation economy across, uh, across the Atlantic. You know, American companies are by far the, most, the biggest investors in the European innovation economy. Europe's R&D economy is hugely dependent on continued U.S. investment at high-end R&D, you know, cutting-edge technology. And the same is true in the United States. Switzerland is a superpower <clears throat> in terms of R&D investment in the United States. The U.S. has become Switzerland's R&D, you know, uh, laboratory. Uh, and, and a huge, I mean, just really staggering for, you know, a country the size of Switzerland, how much of that is done in the U.S. and pharmaceuticals, but lots of other areas. And it's, it's really the bottom line to the, Switzerland's continued global competitive advantage to have that link. Uh, so anything that cuts off that link or challenges is going to be really, really uh, bad for Switzerland, but it's going to be really bad for the high-end employees who work for those companies. So I think the more we can do to facilitate, that's why I talk about the innovation economy, find those areas where we can do more, uh, get our science, National Science Foundation, all these kinds of groupings together. We have a whole system, you know, in the United States of the National Laboratories that's high-end, cutting-edge uh, innovation, have them be plugged in. My point is, we don't have a US-EU framework for this. This is a weak link. This is a very, very weak link. Uh, we don't have a, a process, a way of talking to each other to channel these energies in ways that position us for the future that we're facing. Uh, and, and these are the kinds of things I think could be just done in a different form. You don't have to wrap these in a trade agreement. Let's just work on it. Let's just do it. Right, Lisa, did you want to react to that point? How does it address to you? Well, on the, the German government, of course, we, we all hope that we have a German government for the sake of our trade policy in general as well, not, not, only, not only the U.S., and to counterbalance some other governments who might have some, <laughs> <laughs> some strange views about trade. <laughs> but um, but on, on the U.S. in particular, well, uh, we all know that... Uh, the U.S. wanted some time ago to negotiate a trade deal with Germany be precisely because of this idea of trade the deficit. President, the president. Yes. The, per <laughs> the, the person of Donald Trump. Yes. The person of Donald Trump, but not only, huh? because there were also other people in, in the White House. the Chancellor House. told him eight times you can't do that. You can't do that, exactly. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure if, uh, if it will make a specific difference in this, in this particular case of the U.S. Again, I think... The important thing, and I don't want to leave here with, uh, with uh, the idea that uh, we're all very negative. Uh, we're not. Hopefully, things will improve. Uh, but I think, hopefully, but proactively, so I think we need to engage more with the U.S. 
But of course, we cannot be speaking alone, and that's that's the problem right now. Is we sense that we are speaking a little bit alone. So, uh, when we say we need to give time, I think is on that perspective. Is that time will show uh, also that the relation with Europe is too big and too important uh, not to be at the forefront of the of the agenda of this of this administration. And we need to do that by showcasing the importance. Um, maybe not proposing already something now, because I don't know how open they are to, to new proposals, huh? because we tried. There doesn't seem to be a lot of openness. I'm also giving the benefit of the doubt, because you have a lot of people in the administration that are not there. We are waiting for the deputy USTR that deals with Europe. Uh, so that might be important as well, the one that deals with the WTO as well. So maybe with these two uh, posts filled, maybe we'll have you know more opportunities to to engage to engage with the U.S. in a positive way. Until then, I think we need to continue to engage, of course, and we, we as business are not so not only at European level but also at national level, precisely to showcase that uh, I mean it's not by blocking imports from Europe that you address the problem of trade deficits or of jobs. On the contrary, you could have a negative impact also in the, on the U.S. economy. And yes, and proposing areas where we can work together, WTO reform, China, uh, but engaging China, because I think that's important, is also that we cannot do, whatever we do cannot be perceived, oh, okay, this is China bashing only, and we have a lot of critics on, on China, of course, but it's important that we also make sure that China is engaged in the process because otherwise we will have a trade war, and that's something nobody nobody wants. Thank you very much, Andre. Any final thoughts? Um, no final thoughts. Uh, I think um, the, the the picture that I mean conversation is important. I think what um, we are doing in the area of climate change, um, <laughs> not with what with Washington. <laughs> Beyond Washington, yes, that's the right approach. <laughs> but, uh, not, around Washington. Not, with, <laughs> not around Washington, but throughout the country. Uh, and one does see that, indeed, in the U.S., um, there is a lot of interest for that in uh, different constituencies, uh, uh, different states, uh, cities. And I think, I think that's, the way, that's the way to go for the, for, for, for the moment. Yeah. So it's to stay engaged, but not uh, stay focused on Washington. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Uh, thank you very much uh, both for coming and Andre for your comments. Uh, and please uh, uh, join me in thanking the, the panelists for, for this event. Thank you. Thank you.